meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. Can't think of anything. This is meditation in the city. The Shambhala New York podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Listening is Medicine. Have we become unaccustomed to listening? How do we listen to our world with unbiased ears? In this episode, we reflect upon these questions and discover that the answer can be found by starting with ourselves. Today we are joined by Laura Sims. Laura is an award-winning performer, writer, and educator, advocating storytelling as compassionate action for personal and community transformation. She performs worldwide, combining ancient myth and true life story for adult and family audiences. As a spokesperson for storytelling, she presents keynotes and workshops in conferences, villages, schools, universities, and community events. She is a member of the Therapeutic Arts Alliance of Manhattan and a senior teacher of Shambhala Buddhist Meditation. Here's Laura to take away the discussion. So I wanted to tell you um, a little story about listening. Sometimes in the morning I have a brave attempt at reading the news. And then in order to recover... I often go to a website on Yahoo which talks about unusual friendships between animals (laughs) who seem to be doing it a little better than we are. And this one morning, there was a kind of news alert, an animal news alert about a rescue. And I love reading those when they have happy endings. So a man was jogging across a bridge and he heard at first what he thought was the cry of a baby. And when he listened, he realized it was the sound of kittens. And he looked and he saw a a bag, a sack, kind of bobbing on the water and slowly going down. And without thinking, he ran to the side, it was cold, and he dove into the water, and he took the sack and opened it and found four kittens that had been thrown into the river. And so he was able, actually, to take them to whatever sort of kitten animal refuge sanctuary was in his neighborhood. And I was so struck by the article, which wasn't a big article, because the day before when I was walking down the street, I was trying to say something to a young man who was walking toward me, but he was completely unaware of me and unable to hear me because he was um, under the armor of earphones. And he also had one of those special um, wires where you have a little microphone so you can uh, talk to people at all times. 
And I was so saddened when I saw that. And then I thought how extraordinary it is and how extraordinary that little story was because if we're listening, we can save ourselves and save others' lives. And that we're really becoming unaccustomed to listening. And how profound that is. So I, I think that little story is really a great metaphor for what might be happening to us or not happening to us. And then I thought about, what if I had been thrown in a sack and was calling out? And a group of people were doing their morning jog with earphones on. I think what most of us are accustomed to is hearing. We're, we're somewhat aware, we can't help it, of the general ambience of constant sound that is always there outside of us. And it's so heightened in a city like New York. It's sort of remarkable, isn't it? How much noise we live in and how much we just go on with our lives. And then we come into the shrine room here, which isn't like the quietest place in the world. But it is removed. Many of the distractions are actually aside. And we have a very, very clean space in a way with very little other than reminders of our practice. And then we sit down. And at first I think it's a great relief to have a sitting practice. Would you agree? So I say, wow, you can just sit there. And then it's a great annoying shock. Because not only are we accustomed to ignoring all the sound that's outside, but because of the nature of our practice, suddenly we become specifically aware, um, poignantly, penetratingly aware of how much thinking is going on in our own minds and how much we actually ignore of it. Because once you begin to sit and you have this very literal activity of almost paying only attention to our breath and then becoming aware of thinking and coming back to the breath, aware of thinking and coming back to the breath, what often is the early um, horror show is that we begin to realize how much thinking is going on that we've actually ignored like sub-basements and swimming pools and sort of underwater festivals of thinking. <laughs> and in fact, there's, there's no, um, it's endless. <laughs> and yet we're doing something 
that has the quality of allowing us to become aware of it without our usual routine. And our usual routine is, I think, at least my experience, <laughs> is that very often when a thought arises, I don't experience a thought arising. I suddenly even forget it's a thought and I'm really committed to the information in the thought. Not the color of the thought, the feeling of the thought, but what happens is I become almost allured and captured in the content of the thought and then the possibility of the next one until there's sort of an enormous um, storyline of connections of all kinds of things that are going on. Do you ever have that experience? <laughs> but this curious thing occurs, and sort of out of the blue, awareness pricks our thinking with a tiny thought that reminds us that we're thinking, and that other kind of thought that has arisen out of the blue sky of awareness lets us, if we're willing and, and not too far gone, actually let the storyline go and place the mind back on the breath. So what we're doing is actually listening to something fundamental inside ourselves. Following this? We're listening. Sometimes it's very vague, far away little voice that says, you're thinking. But we know that if we actually do remember and come back to the breath, that the torment of the content is for a moment relieved. And we're listening in a different way. And sometimes we hear our heart beat. And sometimes we hear the space inside. And that familiarity with coming back to the breath allows us for periods of time to actually hear almost like a, the beginning of a note, the arising of a thought where we can feel the texture of thinking and its allure and don't have to, in our practice, lose contact with breath and the sense of the thought and a tremendous feeling of spaciousness. And it's almost a feeling of coming home, coming back 
to just simply being in our body. It's not a hatchet job on the thought or that the content can't serve us at another time or give us insight. But for that moment, we are paying attention to the whole show. And in that, there's a kind of inner relaxation and openness in space that allows us, when we leave the cushion, to actually be far more present in our world and to hear our world. And we begin to listen. Are you following this? And when we begin to listen, we hear the sound of our own voice. We hear the sound of someone else's voice. We hear what they're saying and how they're saying it. We hear a bird on a little traffic lamp on Broadway, even in the midst of tremendous traffic. And our mind wakes up. And that process allows us to experience mind and body and heart on the spot. A second story is about a Montessori class. A friend of mine teaches in a Montessori school, and she loves to describe the um, elaborate setup of all kinds of games and crayons and like a thousand things at every table. So there's always something for each child to do of their own choice and nature and how much time she spends on that. And then one afternoon, there was a little boy and he was just sitting on a rocking chair, staring out to space. And she saw him and thought, there must be something wrong with him or he's being disobedient or he's um, unhealthy in some way, or disabled. <laughs> and she said, excuse me, don't you want to do something? And the little boy said, I am doing something. And she said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm listening. Listening is not only an activity that we have to learn and practice, but it is a gateway to the fruit of our practice in our everyday lives. So the hearing that we do very often is right on the surface. And it's a kind of... Um, Mosaic listening. It's a kind of tune in, tune out, hearing of what somebody's saying, but there's an immediate conversation in our own minds um, that before even that is finished has an opinion of what they're saying 
or an idea about what they're saying or a criticism of what they're saying or a sudden memory or association of our own that is so important and pressing, who really wants to hear the rest of their sentence? So we blurt out something. Or <laughs> because we assume what they're saying is one way, we can even break into an argument. And it is an act, actually, of self-aggression and aggression toward other. Because it lacks the fulfillment of relationship or reciprocity or knowing fully ourselves first and foremost, and then the possibility of actually hearing what someone has to say without immediately having our own response. Do you, is this at all familiar? <laughs> Tell you a third little story and then um, there's a whole practice about listening that's quite beautiful. But I was in a high school and I was, supposedly training students to tell stories for an event. But it was completely wild in the room, so the whole idea of how we were going to get to do that, <laughs> some teachers here are like, no, yeah. Like, how are we going to get to do this? So I said, you know, I am going to ask you to do something that is so hard, I'm not sure any of you can do it whatsoever. And they all look at me. I said, I'm going to ask you to do nothing for 10 seconds, to say nothing and do nothing for 10 seconds. So let's see. Okay? You're just going to sit there. So I counted very slowly to 10, and sure, somebody starts hitting somebody or talking or something. Oh, couldn't make it to 10. Okay, let's try 8. So we counted to 8. And I said, that was pretty good. Let's do it again. I'll, I'll go to 10 this time. Okay. Then it became a thing like, you know, yeah, I could do this. And we, we got up to 20. And the trick was that by 20, there was already some sense of the mind coming back home to the body that it had long abandoned at the door of the school in the morning. <laughs> Even though there was a lot of bravado and hair, you know, things and all this stuff, it was like they were absent, absentee, present students. So actually at 20, all of a sudden, they were kind of there. I said, okay. I said, now, this is really hard. I said, close your eyes and see how many sounds in this room you can hear. And we did it three times, four times. And I listed them on the blackboard until they were hearing things like somebody breathing next to them. And somebody said, I heard my heart. Somebody else said, I could hear like these little squiggles inside. And then the radiator went from having sort of an overall sound to having a variety of sounds. And I said, wow, that's amazing. Now let's really focus on what you hear inside your body. So they closed their eyes, and then they were sort of describing it 
of what was inside their body, really listening. And I said, okay, now this is the last thing. And I, they almost looked disappointed. I said, I would like you to try to keep your eyes open and keep your ears open and listen to all the sounds in the room and then see if you could hear the silence in between the sounds. If only I could give you a visual of this room. But they were there. You could try it. So the other way in which we often are listening is problem solving. Someone is telling us something and we feel committed while they're telling us their problem, not to really 100% listen, but to figure out how we could solve this for them. And Thich Nhat Hanh talks a great deal about that in his listening practices. That if we could actually listen between us in the space of non-thought, several things occur. And one is that quality, like the boy who heard the sound of the snow in the distance before it fell, of some quality of tremendous relief in being connected and being present, being heard and hearing. And sometimes that in itself solves the more fundamental problem of being in our lives. And whether or not we have the meditation instruction to call it noble heart of basic goodness, what's experienced between both people is the presence of fundamental basic goodness that is not about this or that, but it's just our, in sense, life force, what is actually there underneath all this stuff. And that's the medicine. That's the refreshment. That's the beginning of coming back to being real in a very literal sense. It's making sense. So it's not so easy, however. And it takes, like our practice, a commitment, an exertion. Someone asked a great um, teacher about, isn't listening natural? And he said, yes, but we have to learn how to do it. So the first thing, really, before we can actually purely listen with unbiased ears to our world, even to our own mind, 
respectfully or to another. We have to start with ourselves and being able to discern, which is what we're doing fundamentally with our practice, between the quality of what it feels like to be in the thickness of thinking and the moment where we actually just let it go and place the mind on the breath. That spark, that instant, is the gold. Because it's at that moment that we have some inner instruction that allows us to know the difference between what it feels like. I'm not saying that we should get rid of our thoughts or that they really are a negative um, activity in our lives. For certain psychopaths, that's true. But for most of us, it's a very useful thing that we have. But to actually use our thinking mind, even to know what we're actually thinking, to have what we talked about, and I think those of you here for the last talk I gave, the intimacy with ourselves and the distance simultaneously so we could hear. So it takes, first of all, that commitment. And then it takes a willingness to experience the discomfort of being with the impulse to react. And now we're talking about post-meditation. You're talking to someone and like, whoa, you got a really better idea. Or you want to tell them, yeah, they were on the bus. Well, I was on the bus 30 years ago. So that if you stay, just pull yourself back. It's a practice that's so informative. For a moment, pull yourself back and really feel that impulse and stay with it. It, it, it can be like a small earthquake or really a force, like a, a dynamic propulsion, um, an, an engine. And just stay with the energy of it and recommit ourselves to listening. In that moment, we train ourselves to be more present with incredible confidence and strength. And we also then turn ourselves into an ear, a full ear in which we actually listen. And sometimes we can't hold it. <laughs> Just it's like the other things like, come on, you've always paid attention to me before, let's go. <laughs> so it's like, okay. Then at that moment, you come back with a pause. And you can say to someone, wow, I really spaced out or I didn't hear you. Could you tell me what you said again? And in that, first of all, you're getting to know yourself, but you have made a relationship to someone else. Because instead of hiding the fact that we absolutely ignored them because we were so involved in our own festival, that, oh yeah, okay. But it is also a way of slowing down the conversation 
like good foreplay. <laughs> and the other thing is that if someone is really themselves in a propulsion of frenzy of telling you something and it's like so and they're just getting further and further into it and you can feel that it's tumultuous and by asking a question you're also allowing them to come back suddenly the space between us is alive with listening and listening is actually an act of love. It's not love because, or romance, or any of the other luscious tidbits of our gossip life. It's just being present with another person. There's a practice in Buddhism called laying like a log. And it's the practice of patience. And listening is an act of patience. And patience is palpable. Patience is um, palpable perception. It's not forbearance, okay, I'm going to be a patient person and listen. It is that sense of being there and laying like a log is that quality of staying with the discomfort like an explorer or a discomfort archaeologist. That you stay with it because of the texture of it and you're getting to know something about yourself and giving your mind strength. Listening is a mind vitamin. <laughs> and what does this have to do with our world? At some point, the discomfort of the practice becomes almost um, vivid, brilliant, wakeful presence. Because it is in that patience that we can really give some space or a meltdown to fixation and grasping on the problem or the thought or the emotion. We don't have to get rid of it, but we can actually feel it before we turn it into an analyzed thought or an assumed opinion or um, a category. Suddenly we're with it. And then we have the brilliance of our accessible intelligence. And we know what to do. Unbiased thinking or unbiased listening is being aware of the fact that of your distractions and being able to, in a sense, acknowledge them, let them go, or maybe they're a message and you can actually hear it. There's space enough for that. And then you can turn 
to actually listen to what's being said, even knowing your opinion. You may think, this is so screwed up, and I don't know where they got this idea from, but you can hear that idea and even say to somebody, I have heard what you said. I was being audited recently. Tax audit, IRS. And I kept asking the same question over and over again because all these years certain things were tax deductions and all of a sudden they were not tax deductions and I didn't want to believe what she was saying. <laughs> she was very patient and repeated over and over again that they were not. <laughs> and then at some point it just clicked in and I paused and I felt the terror I was feeling and the that, that I didn't want this to be real. <laughs> and then I said, can I say something to you a little off the books? She said, okay. I said, you know, I don't like anything you're saying to me. <laughs> but I'm so amazed and so moved by how you're saying it. And I am paying $40,000 less. <laughs> no. Um, so, <laughs> but I'm actually, but, um, but what happened between us is suddenly we were no longer an adversary. Is that the right word? An adversary, an adversary, <laughs> put together as an adversary, but um, an adversary and, and a victim. <laughs> But suddenly, we were human beings in that room. And she said, God, could you write that down? <laughs> and I said, I'd be delighted to write it down. I said, because you were patient with me. She said, I've had artists in here before. <laughs> but the truth of it was that... <laughs> that that moment of my being willing to listen to her, you know, it made the whole thing so beautiful that even though I was in this <laughs> situation, <laughs> I really liked her. And at that moment, she liked me also because she was heard. And when I thought of the title of this talk, Listening is Medicine, was thinking that I know I'm in lots of situations and probably every single one of us is in a lot of situations at work, even on the subway. If you're an educator or a doctor, um, business person, a, a bus driver, but whatever it is, we are always engaged with other people in other situations and to practice with patience the quality of listening, we become like the man who heard the kittens crying. We actually save our lives and others. We allow people to be fully heard and acknowledged. And we also get to know ourselves and we rest 
inside ourselves through listening. The key, as Chungbu Rinpoche wrote in Heart of the Buddha or in another gorgeous book called Pure Perception, which is about making art, but it's really about life as making art. It talks about the fundamental journey which is coming to know our mind so that we can recognize basic goodness all the time and therefore be present in our lives with appreciation and with a sense of joy. And we have begin to have relationships with other. Not the phantasmagoric relationships that I know I have specialized in. <laughs> but in something very raw and tender and vivid. And amazing things happen, not by solving the problem, but just by listening. Someone is in the hospital and their situation is impossible. And you, what are you going to say? So you can let someone talk and you keep opening, opening, opening and you actually hear them and their words become so real and your relationship becomes so real that there is a sense for each person of being able to be in actuality, even able to be with extreme pain or death without the grasp of panic. In the middle of the night in a Buddhist seminary in 1983, Trungpa Rinpoche said to us, you know, if you could just rest with your panic, on the other side of your panic is bliss. So our adventure is discovering what it really is to be present and how potent an activity that is. And a lot of our path is about listening. So, um, I don't have like a watch up here or anything. I don't know what time it is. But I'll just read you a little piece of a poem by Rumi, which is called Listening, the Persian poet from Afghanistan. And he says, there's a moon inside every human being. Learn to be companions with it. Give more of your life to this listening. As brightness is to time, so you are to the one who talks to the deep ear in your chest. I should sell my tongue and buy a thousand ears when that one steps near and begins to speak. So any questions, thoughts? Sometimes I feel like um, I, I know that I'm really listening 
Um, but, but then I feel like I'm not being heard when it comes to the exchange. And I, I guess I was wondering what, you know, is it your job to, to compel the other person to listen or just maybe it's my job just to, I don't know, just to listen is just that, ex, that exchange is, mm. is hard. What a fabulous question. What a poignant question. <laughs> you know, one thing that's really quite interesting is to realize you're not being heard and also to feel what that's like, partially because then we develop so, more com so much more compassion for others. And it, it's not what we say sometimes, but how we say it. And in the practice of listening, you're listening not only to the words, but sometimes you're listening to the energy of the space between you and, and other. And sometimes there is a situation which only you can know at that time in which you'd say to someone, can I say this again to you or would you like to hear me? Honestly, if you don't, it's really okay. Mm -hmm. But it's how you say that. And also, you know, that's why the pra I'm saying the practice of listening is not like, it's not like we have a, a book that has the seven ways to, seven things you say to someone who's not listening to you. <laughs> and those could be helpful, a little bit. But really, what we're really training here is not knowing what to do because it's written down somewhere, but gaining the capacity or the access to the deepest profound listening that is our natural intelligence. And in that, so the poignancy is you're coming back and knowing that sometimes changes the space. It's like being in an argument with someone and someone is really trying to hammer away at a point and you're like listening but you're also so irritated and you want to just like hammer back that they are wrong or whatever or and at some point, you actually pause and feel the quality of their words and the space. You also, it, it, they can't make you angry. So you just listen. If it's really bad, you can just say, I, I have to leave. Oh. I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, whatever you need to do in yourself. But... Um, but you actually listen to the sound. And then suddenly you have distance because you're friends with space. <laughs> and you might see their face and see the contortion and the pain of it, the insecurity, the fear, the overwhelm, whatever it is. But by coming back to yourself, you can also experience the spark of your own anger or what's going, you can hear what's going on in your mind. You have the space for it all. We have the space for it all. And in that lies tremendous experiment of living with each other in the world. So it may not have a solution or the outcome, but it's part of our journey. And that's information. But wisdom information to listen and realize that you're not being heard. But come back to yourself. 
You don't have to make a point. Come back. What does it feel like? Somebody may surprise you and say, I'm so sorry, can you say that again? Or what were you saying? There's so much that we can explore in that space. Because I'm not in the conversation, so I don't know what you're saying that's not being heard. There are people who can't hear. And then there's parts of us of what are we really saying? So if we can, you know, we can have periods of time which we abandon our self-judgment, <laughs> which is um, a major uh, part of our everyday in this culture, that we could actually say, okay, today I'm going to listen to myself and, I, and I'm going to try not to judge it or even my judgment. I'm not going to get mad at my judgment, but just listen to it. It's all a process of listening, and listening is patience. And patience, then, is how we access um, focus and being in our bodies and being in any situation. And it actually gives you the capacity to be very fast when you have to do something. But you do it out of intelligence. So it's something we get to know, the difference between our intellectual thought, we're obsessed with quotes, <laughs> or our insight, which is immediate and big, big. Insight may say, well, just won't say anything. You just sit. Say, I'm sorry. Thank you. What? Is that helpful? Yeah. I mean, it's such a great question, really, brilliant question. Whenever I, or not whenever, but sometimes if I'm like deeply engaged in a conversation that perhaps is uh, uh, escalating with uh, any, any sort of person whose opinion I value, um, parent, sibling, uh, if I were dating someone, significant other, um, <laughs> it's a small boss, editor, girls. whatever, um, <laughs> there uh, there will come there will frequently come a a spot where like I can literally feel like my words get caught in my throat, and it's, it's especially if it's something that's like totally upsetting, and mm -hmm. like I can't like that 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 voice of like my own wisdom or whatever uh, has like kind of left the building. Um, so when you're in such a dynamic, uh, what, what, the, what do you do? Well, first of all, I, it appears that that voice has left the building, but it doesn't live in the building. It lives in each one of us. <laughs> um, it's your address. So, that's great that you know that that's happening. That's it. So, it, it, you know, if, if we struggle with it, it can lead to paralysis <laughs> or like um, disembodied um, adventures. <laughs> so sometimes you just take a pause and feel it and breathe. Sometimes you have to um, say something about it only because that will break it up. Like, oops, 
I'm having a, thought, a, a throat thought attack. Hold on a second. Which also, you know, pausing doesn't get enough advertisement. But it's, it's our anxiety, so we shut down something and we start like... <clears throat> so breathe. Take a pause. You know, some people freak out when you pause because nothing's happening for a moment. Not that any of us fall into that category. But unbiased listening is, is like a fever. It, you, you get it. You catch it from others. So if you really take a pause, that part of us that is also present, it, it wants to meet that place. So you explore. Not everything always works out the same way. <laughs> but it also, it, again, it's a great question, but because this is the minutiae of our lives, and if there is a meditation practice and it is going to work for us, then it has to work in our everyday lives for the you know 23 hours or the 23 hours and 40 minutes when we're not on the cushion. <laughs> That's what it's for. So thank you. Is that is that helpful? We'll see. <laughs> um, I've lived in the city really quite a while, and I've seen such a difference. And you referred to this when you first started to speak about people wired to this or that to a device. Mm -hmm. And do you think, I mean, there were, in the 18th century, there were salons and at point, you know, people would go to coffee houses and chit-chat. So there seems to be much less. Do you find that? And what's that going to do with the listening in the long run? And it's a big question, but how will it change the society? Because if you don't listen, there was no talking to a person, you just, and no interchange, um, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm quite curious. I'd love to hear. Well, I think it is happening. I was at a, a meeting, actually. We were all meditators. We were in a restaurant that was extremely noisy. But we were each you know, checking in, going around a kind of council. And then you could feel that this incredible space that defied all the noise had been building that allowed us to listen through it as if we, we had these little pathways of quiet, little road, quiet roads in this massively noisy restaurant that I think has special acoustics. <laughs> but then it broke, it broke. And I looked around, and I realized that two people were under the tablecloth actually texting each other. 
And it was the first time I felt so viscerally the experience that we, you know, it, it's so profound that we have this technology. I mean, I, I can talk to kids in wars in other countries. Um, you know, I can, you know, we can do things that are utterly amazing and helpful and useful. But it's like a wild horse that's riding us. And we forget that the space between us is alive. And that's where the communication is occurring, where the listening lives, where the medicine and the repair of our world is. And then, you know, so I, I actually said, I spoke. <laughs> And I said, wow, that was amazing. I just felt this space change. You know, what, why, how could you be in the conversation and texting? And both people were very defensive and said, well, uh, it's easier for me to pay attention if I'm doing something else. <laughs> because I think it becomes a kind of um, ego pablum, um, uh, the discomfort of being present is often more um, frightening than the beauty of experiencing the vividness of, of the world because it becomes a mental activity becomes more interesting to us because we've gotten further and further away from actual listening. So we could be the masters and mistresses of both technology and the most extraordinary technology that cannot be replicated, which is just being and communication. But if we do lose that, I think then um, we'll be more prone to wars and we won't have a sense of responsibility for each other or the environment. We won't be there for each other when we're dying. Um, we won't feel each other's sorrows and joys with empathy because we'll, that muscle will get very flaccid. The thing about that muscle, which I think is the reason why I told the story about the high school class, it's still there. It's like, it's like you know, the awareness is not, it, if basic goodness is real, why would we meditate if we were going to get, we could get an app? But we have to, you know, it's, 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 it is fundamentally our birthright, but it's the one thing that we are not taught how to relate to, which is being here. And for however long we're here, we might as well be here because we are here. <laughs> so I do think that there are some, you know, there are schools where they, like in Silicon Valley, there's an elementary school which is very well supported by some of the wealthiest and biggest internet company parents. And they just didn't want their children to grow up without being in the world. But when they, they have, um, like you're in school eight hours, if seven hours you cannot be on your phone, you cannot be on your iPad, there are no computers in the school. And what's happened is that the children have cheered up. They have cheered up, there's less violence, 
they're doing better in school, they speak up about what they're feeling, and they go home and talk to their parents and have their parents turn off the computers and listen to them. So, I don't know, we have to start with ourselves. If we really know what it is, then, you know, there's a teacher in, um, my, my friend is here, Donna, from Australia, who's a great storyteller. We were out in Newark today, and there's the teacher who yesterday, we weren't there, after the girls, I'm doing a girls writing group called Girls Write Newark. And it's going to be a partner project with what I'm doing in Haiti. So after the girls sat down, they sat down in their circle waiting for me. And before I got there, they were all on iPhones and iPads and like plugged in. And she went around and she took them all and put them on a desk. And it was like a, like a weird moment in space as they readjusted and then kind of forgot about it. But then I looked up and she was on her cell phone texting. <laughs> And I said, Miss Kelly, do I have to take, and I said, it kind of, do I have to take that away from you? And she said, oh, I forgot. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. But I, but I think it is, uh, it is very prominent. We should um, stop and um, thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.